Welcome to the Kerrville Bible Church Podcast. Listen in as our pastoral staff and occasional guests discuss a variety of topics from the Bible and other sources during our weekly staff meeting. Now, here's Scott Christensen with this week's discussion. Well, today we want to we want to talk about some of the heroes of the faith, um, heroes that uh, Christians that have um, had an impact on the life of the church in in church history, and uh, and in particular uh, Christians that each of us um, have been impacted by, and uh, and so we're going to talk about those individuals, and I'm going to begin by talking about. Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards was a, quite an interesting uh, Christian. He was born in 1703 in Connecticut. Uh, died in 19 in not not 19 1758. He was 54 years old when he died. Uh, he um, he at that time was appointed as the third president of Princeton University. And back in those days, all of the the Ivy League schools were, were, were really Christian colleges, Yale and Harvard and Princeton, all those schools, they, they were, they trained pastors, actually. And, uh, and that's how all those schools began. So uh, kind of interesting how all that has evolved to the present day. But anyway, he died uh, of, an, uh, of a, a smallpox inoculation. And uh, he was also known as the, uh, the grandfather of Aaron Burr who shot and killed uh, Alexander Hamilton in a duel. And uh, so he, he has that unfortunate distinction. But uh, Edwards was known as a pastor of the Congregational Church at Northampton in Massachusetts that his grandfather had been the pastor of. And he is, uh, he is regarded even by secular scholars as one of the great, if not perhaps the greatest thinker in American history. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and certainly he is, I believe, one of maybe the top 10 theologians in the history of the church. He was truly a, a pastor theologian. Um, and and, in, and in really historically, Theologians were pastors. We now make a distinction sometimes between a theologian and a pastor, but pastors should be theologians. And uh, historically, theologians were always pastors, and that was certainly the case with Jonathan Edwards. Edwards is also known as uh, being used of God to spark the first great awakening, which happened in the 1730s and into the 1740s. uh, Edwards was a was by some accounts not all that great of a preacher, um, though though I think he was a far greater preacher than people reckon him to be. But his most well known sermon, which is probably the most famous sermon in American history, is called "Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God." And of course, um, what is interesting about that sermon is he first preached it in his own church. Uh, in, I think, 1734, and there was virtually no response to that sermon when he preached it in his own church. A couple months later, he was traveling uh, to a town called Enfield, Connecticut, um, and happened to visit a a church there. Well, it happened that on that Sunday, the pastor took ill, 
And, and so Edwards ended up filling the pulpit. He just happened to have a manuscript of Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God in his saddlebag, pulled it out, preached that sermon, and it is said that people were so impacted by it that people were crying out in the middle of the sermon asking how they could be saved. And, uh, and that sermon was used in many ways probably to spark the first Great Awakening in which literally thousands, perhaps tens of thousands of people came to faith in Christ. And you have to think of, uh, of the fact that during this time, during the, the colonial era of America, there was probably only about a million people. So, you know, when you think thousands or tens of thousands of people coming to faith in Christ, that's a pretty significant number. What is also interesting about the First Great Awakening is that a similar awakening took place in Britain, in Ireland, and England, and Scotland, and they happened essentially at the same time, um, and uh, and really unbeknownst to each other. But but soon the awakening caught fire everywhere, and 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 George Whitfield, who was a famous preacher from England, also good friends with John and Charles Wesley, uh, came to America. And when he came, then then the awakening in America really caught on like wildfire. Uh, so very interesting. Edwards uh, is also known as the author of several really important books. Uh, one book that he wrote is called The Religious Affections. And, uh, and it really is a, a an analyzation of the Great Awakening and, and the distinction between uh, true belief and false belief. And he really con- contrasts what are the marks of a true believer. And it's a fascinating book. Um, he's also well known for writing the book Freedom of the Will, which is has a special place in my own heart because my book on free will, What About Free Will, really finds its roots in, in what Edwards wrote in that book and um, Edwards really um, catapulted our understanding of God's sovereignty and our human response in ways that no one previously in church history had done even um, Calvin and, and Martin Luther who had written books on this same subject did not capture it the way that Edwards did and ever since Edwards no one has thought the same about that subject because he was so incisive. Anyway, um, there's so much that I could say about Jonathan Edwards. Um, if you are interested in, in learning more about him, I encourage you to... There, oh, there's so many good books about Edwards and good things that you can read on Edwards. I would say that the single best place to go if you want to read about Edwards is a, is a biography by Ian Murray called Jonathan Edwards, a new biography. It's published by Banner of Truth. Fantastic biography. Uh, there's a shorter book that, that covers a broader range of all things Edwards. It's called A God Entranced Vision of All Things, The Legacy of Jonathan Edwards, and it's uh, edited by John Piper and Justin Taylor. If you are familiar at all with the ministry of John Piper, he was deeply influenced by Jonathan Edwards. Also, you can go to edwards.yale.edu and you can read everything that Jonathan Edwards wrote on that website. And it's a great place, a great place to, to read his sermons, 
uh, his other books and so forth. So that's that's Jonathan Edwards. All right. <clears throat> I'm up next. Okay, thank you. Uh, I'm going to talk about Diedrich Bonhoeffer for a few minutes, and uh, I've only read one book about him. It was Eric Metaxas biography that he published in 2010. I'm going to start my little spiel here by reading from the back cover of this of this book. Uh, he begins, who better to face the greatest evil of the 20th century than a humble man of faith? As Adolf Hitler and the Nazis seduced a nation, bullied a continent, and attempted to exterminate the Jews of Europe, a small number of dissidents and saboteurs worked to dismantle the Third Reich from the inside. One of these was Diedrich Bonhoeffer, a pastor and author. In this uh, best-selling biography, Eric Metaxas takes both strands of Bonhoeffer's life, the theologian and the spy, and draws them together to tell a searing story of incredible moral courage in the face of monstrous evil. Um, I'll stop there. It goes on. But it's a very uh, compelling biography, and I commend it to you. It's called Bonhoeffer, Pastor, Martyr, Prophet, Spy. It's about 500 pages. But if you've read any of Eric Metaxas' stuff, it reads great. It's, it's a page-turner. You need a dictionary to read it. So we might disagree. But, I, read, uh, I read about that much, you know, about an inch worth of it. So let me uh, talk about, I'm going to read a couple of excerpts from this uh, and then tell you why I picked him for our highlight today of all the people we could talk about in church history that maybe have had an impact on us. Um, so I'll start with uh, some comments about his conversion. And by the way, uh, and I think this is a go for all of us, uh, when we highlight a book or a person in church history, that doesn't mean that we agree with everything they ever believed or wrote. Right. doesn't mean we endorse every book that we're even commending to you. There, uh, there, there may be some things with Bonhoeffer that certainly uh, Orthodox Christians have questioned or, 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 or had thoughts about or questions about. Um, so just keep that in mind. Well, here's an excerpt on his, um, uh, from his conversion. Uh, he says, I plunged into work in a very unchristian way. So here was a man brought up in the, in the confessional church in Germany. Uh, so he'd been around Christianity and the state church his entire life from, from his earliest days. And he says, I plunged into work in a very unchristian way. An ambition that many noticed in me made my life difficult. Then something happened, something that has changed and transformed my life to the present day. For the first time, I discovered the Bible, the Bible I had often preached. I had seen a great deal of the church, capital C, and I talked and preached about it, but I had not yet become a Christian. I know that at that time, I turned the doctrine of Jesus Christ into something of personal advantage for myself. I pray to God that that will never happen again. Also, I had never prayed or prayed only very little. For all my loneliness, I was quite pleased with myself. So I'll stop right there. He was a, he was a, a severe introvert, a loner, a brilliant man, very gifted in a lot of ways, musically, with literature, an incredible mind. But he was, a, he was a, a very much a, a loner and an introvert by personality. He goes on. He says, Then the Bible... And in particular, the Sermon on the Mount freed me from that. Since then, everything has changed. I have felt this plainly, and so have other people about me. It was a great liberation. 
it became clear to me that the life of a servant of Jesus Christ must belong to the church. And step by step, it became plainer to me how far that must go. <clears throat> then came the crisis of 1933. This strengthened me in it. Also, I now found others who shared that aim with me. The revival of the church and the ministry became my supreme concern. My calling is quite clear to me. What God will make of it, I do not know. I must follow the path. Perhaps it will not be such a long one. That was interesting. So he wrote wow. this in 1936. And he had a sense that his path may not last long. Mm -hmm. He says, but it is a fine thing to have realized my calling. I believe its nobility <clears throat> will become plain to us, not only in coming times and events, if only we can hold out. Oh, there's so much here to possibly talk about. It's been several years since I've actually read this, so uh, not much of it is super familiar. And I, I really feel like in reviewing it that I'd like to read it again. Um, let me jump over to something he wrote that is very provocative, and uh, I had highlighted this page. It was uh, He loved the Sermon on the Mount. Um, he studied it deeply, preached it often, and tried to live it out. He, he felt like the Sermon on the Mount was the clearest picture of what Christianity was, what it meant to be a Christian, what it meant to be a follower of Christ. Um, and so here was his thoughts on part of the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, he says, Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before swine, lest they trample them underfoot and turn and attack you. Matthew 7, 6. And here's his commentary on it. The promise of grace is not to be squandered. <clears throat> it needs to be protected from the godless. There are those who are not worthy of the sanctuary. The proclamation of grace has its limits. Grace may not be proclaimed to anyone who does not recognize or distinguish or desire it. Not only does that pollute the sanctuary itself, not only must those who sin still be guilty against the most holy, but in addition, the misuse of the holy must turn against the community itself. Now you have to remember, this was a person brought up in the state church where everybody in a local area is part of a church, regardless of conversion, regardless of belief, regardless of a lifestyle. That's the context he's writing from. Hmm. He goes on. He says, the, I love this line. The world upon whom grace is thrust as a bargain will grow tired of it. And it will not only trample upon the holy, but also will tear apart those who force it on them. For its own sake, for the sake of the sinner, and for the sake of the community, the holy is to be protected from cheap surrender. The gospel is protected by the preaching of repentance, which calls sin, sin, and declares the sinner guilty. The key to loose is protected by the key to bind. The preaching of grace can only be protected by the preaching of repentance. Very provocative. He had a way with words just like that. Um, I highlight him because this is one of the people in church history that I can relate to on a personality level. I can't to Spurgeon and I can't to Luther for sure. But uh, as I read this biography, I thought, wow, this guy, he's brilliant. And I'm not relating to that. I'm relating to his personality. He was very much uh, an introvert and a loner. And, and to see how God took that kind of person and, and what he did with him was very, very encouraging. 
Um, I also chose him because I admire his great courage. Uh, you got to read the book to learn more about that. The last thing is one of the lines out of this book that I still remember is how he would study the Bible line by line, verse by verse, carefully. And he would say, when I open the Bible, I want to think of it as God's word to me personally. Mm-hmm. This is God's word to me, and this is how God speaks to me through the Bible. And so he would uh, spend, you know, days at a time on one verse before he would move on to something else. All right, I'm way out of time. Next. Scott has something he wants. He's oh, I was just going to say, very few people can relate to the, uh, to the personality of Martin Luther. That's why many people thought he was a lunatic. In fact, in, in Sproul's book, The Holiness of God, he has a chapter called The Insanity of Luther. Um, but anyway, nonetheless, God used him. <laughs> right. That's right. Um, well, I have actually one that rose to the surface, but I feel like I have to mention the the uh, honorable mention of uh, Fanny Crosby. Um, and I took your suggestion, Scott. I, I, I looked at Charles Wesley, Fanny Crosby, and um, Fanny Crosby came in second. Um and I, is this cheating? She, I feel like this is, is cheating. Yeah, yeah. I didn't want to, <laughs> You're doing too I, uh, I didn't want to talk about this at all. Right. And so, as so you definitely uh, so, Toby so protested a, this pod. Yes, I protested topic. this topic. And so, in he response, almost started a riot. I'm talking about two people, right. not just one. You're doubling down. That's yeah. right. And so, uh, so Fanny Crosby. I don't have a whole lot to say about her except that I mean, she wrote thousands of hymns uh, and many of them will never hear like like most hymn writers who are very prolific the world really doesn't ever hear everything or see everything that they wrote Um, but she was blinded uh, early in life when she was a toddler and um, from a, a shyster really coming through town selling the kind of a snake oil salesman Uh, she had an infection they treated her with this some sort of ointment and it caused her to go blind so she had no recollection throughout her life of ever having sight and the only the really the thing that I want to share about her is her uh, her gladness about being blind and and she said that she was glad that she had no recollection. I'm going to botch this. I'm going to paraphrase what she said. She had. She was glad that she had no recollection of ever having sight, because she wanted the first thing to ever gladden her sight to be the face of Jesus. She wow. was so pleased to have been blind, so that she could see Jesus wow. face to face. The first thing she ever remembered seeing would be Jesus. I just thought that was uh, that was awesome. But my number one choice is Charles Wesley. And um, and this this book that I'm uh, I'm, I'm going to read a couple of excerpts from is from uh, Rob Morgan Robert Morgan he's a teaching pastor at the Donaldson Fellowship in Nashville and he's compiled um, these little uh, books of of hymns and their stories the stories on the on the hymns themselves and uh, and the the writers. Uh, the one I'm reading from is it's called a special edition, which is basically a greatest hits. Um, there are a couple of books, and I don't remember really maybe three volumes of this of these hymn books. 
Um, and then this is kind of a, a compilation of kind of the best, the best of them. So Charles Wesley has six uh, in this in this one book. And so here's here's some uh, biographical information, and uh, I'll kind of interject some of my own thoughts uh, as we go. But Charles Wesley was born just before Christmas in 1707. He was premature and neither cried nor opened his eyes. His mother, Susanna, kept him tightly wrapped in wool until his actual due date, whereupon he opened his eyes and cried. At age eight, he was taken to London to attend Westminster School. At 13, he became a King's Scholar at Westminster, and upon graduating, Charles enrolled at Oxford. He was 19 and full of life. He later said, my first year at college, I lost in diversions. Uh, Derek, yeah, sounds like college. <laughs> I think a lot of people get to say that. Lost uh, in diversions, yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> During his second year at Oxford, he grew serious about spiritual things. Uh, I found this interesting. Neither he nor his brother John had yet received Christ as Savior, but they began seeking to live the Christian life so methodically that they were dubbed Methodist by fellow students. And that's how the Methodist kind of movement got its start. Uh, Their studies completed. the The brothers volunteered to go to Georgia a new colony in America for those in uh, Britain's debtor's prison, uh, founded by Colonel James Oglethorpe. But as a missionary, Charles was an utter failure. He was demanding and autocratic, and he insisted on baptizing infants, not by sprinkling, but by immersing them three times in succession. One angry woman fired a gun at him. (laughs) It's really dangerous for unsaved people to be missionaries. Right, yes. I agree. Charles left America ill and depressed. Uh, apparently he had pleurisy, uh, hardening in the, in the lungs. Sometime later, John also returned in low spirits. Finding themselves in spiritual crisis, the brothers began attending meetings led by the Moravian Christian Peter Beeler, Baylor. Finally, on Sunday, May 21st, 1738, Charles, at 31, wrote, I now find myself, found myself at peace with God and rejoiced in hope of loving Christ. I saw that by faith I stood. John came to Christ about the same time, saying, I felt my heart strangely warmed. On uh, May 23rd, Tuesday, two days later, Charles wrote in his journal, I began a hymn upon my conversion. Apparently, he, uh, upon his conversion, he wrote more than 6,000 hymns. <laughs> uh, so... Uh, I, I'm quite behind in my in my hymn writing. Um, he I began a hymn upon my conversion. We aren't certain which hymn he meant, but many historian historians think it was and can it be uh, because of his vivid testimony of verse four, which Chris has uh, often quoted. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke. The dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Um, uh, one, there, there are six in here. Uh, so many we sing in just beloved hymns. Uh, the Christmas hymn, uh, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, just packed with theological, they call it theological brawn. Uh, 
artistic beauty and theological brawn. That's that's the goal for a hymn writer. Mm-hmm. Artistic beauty and theological brawn. Uh, the Advent hymn, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus, he wrote that. Uh, we sing that here, um, usually toward the first of first part of the Christmas season. The Easter hymn that we can't do without, Christ the Lord is Risen Today. Mm-hmm. Um, and not all things bright and beautiful. Rejoice the Lord is King. It's kind of one of the lesser known, um, but very uh, impactful. Uh, and then over a thousand tongues to sing. We sing this often. And uh, so I just want to read the, the read quickly the story. Uh, the Wesley brothers sent word of their conversion to their sainted mother, Susanna, who didn't know what to make of it. I think you have fallen into an odd way of thinking, she, <laughs> she replied. You say that till within a few months you had no spiritual life and no justifying faith. I heartily rejoice that you have attained to a strong and lively hope in God's mercy through Christ. Not that I can think that you were totally without saving faith before, but it is one thing to have faith and another thing to be sensible we have it. So one thing to have it and one thing to be assured that you have it. Well, Charles was now very sensible of having it. His life changed and he gained victory over both his temper and his unfortunate drinking habit. He says, I was so, I was amazed to find my old enemy in temperance so suddenly subdued that I almost forgot I was ever in bondage to him. He also began to spread the news of what had happened to him. In the coach to London, he wrote, I, <laughs> I preached faith in Christ. A lady was extremely offended and threatened to beat me. <laughs> I declared that I deserved nothing but hell. So did she and must confess it before she could have a title to heaven. This was most intolerable to her. <laughs> New vitality came into Charles's public preaching. It's amazing how conversion will do that. <laughs> he discontinued the practice of reading his sermons and began preaching extemporaneously. Like Rodrigo in <laughs> <and> Bernie. <laughs> he found a fruitful arena for, uh, for ministry at the infamous Newgate Prison and allowed himself to be locked up with condemned men on nights before their executions that he might comfort and witness to them during their final hours. As the first anniversary of his conversion approached, Charles wrote an 18 stanza hymn describing his praise to the Lord. It was titled, For the Anniversary Day of One's Conversion, and the first stanza began, Glory to God and praise and love. Verse 7 began, Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing, inspired by a statement Charles had once heard. Had I a thousand tongues, I would praise him with, with them all. Uh, so that's Charles Wesley. So uh, then the, the book is called Then Sings My Soul by Robert J. Morgan. And it's a nice little treasury. So Toby, how many hymns have you written or songs or... Uh, Songs. Uh, I would, original songs, I would think probably in the 30, maybe. 30. Yeah. So you got a long way to go. Yes, very long way to go. <laughs> I chose uh, Charles Spurgeon. Lightweight. Um, <laughs> <okay>. <laughs> never heard of him. Wow. <laughs> but you never heard some of the things that I'm going to say, I hope. <laughs> We name our little Susanna in honor to um, Spurgeon's wife, 
her name was Susanna, who was an excellent woman. I take the opportunity to recommend this book, Susie, The Life and Legacy of Susanna Spurgeon, yeah. Wife of Charles Spurgeon by Ray Rhodes. Excellent, excellent book. Here are some interesting facts of Spurgeon's ministry and life. One woman was converted through reading a single page of one of Spurgeon's sermons wrapped around some butter she had bought. <laughs> Spurgeon read the Pilgrim's Progress at age six and went on to read it over a hundred times. Spurgeon's personal library contained 12,000 volumes. That's about half of what Scott has. <laughs> <laughs> he has nothing on me. <laughs> Before he was 20, Spurgeon had preached over 600 times. Spurgeon typically read six books per week and could remember that what he had read and where, even years later. Okay, I can't do that. He had a photographic memory, right? Spurgeon once said he counted eight sets of thoughts, eight sets of thoughts that passed through his mind at the same time while he was preaching. Testing the acoustics in the vast agricultural hall, Spurgeon shouted, Behold the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. A worker high in the rafters of the building heard this and became converted to Christ as a result. Spurgeon often worked 18 hours a day. Famous explorer and missionary David Livingstone once asked him, How do you manage to do two men's work in a single day? Spurgeon replied, you have forgotten that there are two of us. I'm sure he meant God and him, that God assisted him in, in everything he did. So how, why did I, uh, why I chose Spurgeon? Here's why I give you a few reasons, very briefly. Um, his ministry began in, a, in the year of his conversion as a young man. Um, he was a lover of the church. He worked really hard. He was a man of hard work and, and a huge influence. He was self-consciously a theological and doctrinal preacher. Uh, by the way, I stole these 10 things from a um, blog somewhere. He was pre-eminently a theologian and a preacher of the cross, just like um, Edwards. He aimed his ministry in preaching at new birth. He was a preacher of regeneration. He, he knew how to enjoy life. I know uh, that about him. He was a mischievous, funny man. I'm, I'm glad to hear that because we often hear Calvinists being serious you know, and angry. But he was, a, he was very Calvinistic, but at the same time, a, a, a humble man, a joyful man, a funny man. And he was serious about joy, really. And he suffered also with depression, which is strange, some, this element of his preaching. And he was emphatically Christ-centered. Mm. And if you hear his sermons and you read his sermons, uh, that's exactly what you get. He, was, he preached Christ and hear him crucified. So I encourage everybody to, to read sermons. Here are some few suggestions on... Uh, uh, his books and some resources that you can find very um, helpful for you. Sources on the web, if you go to YouTube, you type Through the Eyes of Spurgeon. Mm -hmm. That's a beautiful, beautiful documentary. It's very well done. 
you, it's for free. You can just watch it anytime. If you have Amazon Prime, you can watch C.H. Spurgeon, The People's Preacher. Really good documentary, very good. too. Very good video. Yes, I mean, if you go to Spurgeon.org, that's the Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary uh, website of Spurgeon, they are running it, they manage it. And in it, you will also find information about the Spurgeon Library. That sounds very interesting to me. I would love to visit there. I recently saw a, a, a brother who had a picture of Spurgeon's uh, pulpit in there. A few books. Um, lectures to my student. I read that book several years ago. And it really was influential to my life, to my call to ministry. Morning and Evening, as a daily devotional, and the Treasury of David, a commentary on the Psalms. Uh, if you're looking for a biography, I recommend Spurgeon, a, a biography by Arnold Delimore. People say that this is the best uh, biography, mm. so it might be, and just a little personal story, 30 seconds here. I had the opportunity to go to London several years ago, and I knew about Spurgeon. I wasn't, he wasn't my favorite, necessarily, a preacher. So I had the opportunity to visit several places. And our last day, our fourth day, I was in the, the bus going back to home where I was, we, we were staying with Chila and ready to leave. So I was looking at the buildings and I saw Metropolitan mm. um, Tabernacle of London. And I thought, the house in Spurgeon, man, I lost it. <laughs> Next time I come, I'll visit. <laughs> That's my little story. So hopefully the Lord will give me an opportunity to visit London again. And I will certainly yeah. won't miss the opportunity to visit that place. A quick PS. We did this as a book of the month a while back. A great book by Michael Reeves, Spurgeon on the Christian Life. <clears throat> Spurgeon on the Christian Life. And it's a, a less than you know, 170-page book. Um, Excellent, excellent resource. We read it together as pastoral staff discussed it. Uh, we're, all of us were greatly uh, convicted, challenged, blessed. So. All right. Thanks, guys. Uh, just want to encourage you to, to read church history and read biographies of great uh, Christians in, in history. We can learn so much uh, from, from them and from the past. So thanks. Thanks for listening to the Kerrville Bible Church Podcast. In future episodes, we would like to answer your biblical, theological, or pastoral questions. Send them to us via email at questions at kerrvillebiblechurch.org or leave us a text or voicemail at 830-321-0349.